Hello from the ABA Annual Meeting 2018 in Chicago, Illinois. I'm Rocky Deer. I'm Mike Panter. David Pardue. I'm Michael Weber. I'm Matthew Muller. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, we are talking about pleadings. How many of you have actually thought deeply about your pleadings? Well, maybe it's time to do so. we got a distinguished panel here talking about the importance of pleadings. Now, you guys were just on a panel, on a panel discussion, over at the tort trial insurance practice section at the hotel next door, and you guys had a very interesting topic. So, and actually, I'm, I'm going to turn this over to our moderator, Judge Mike Panter. Judge, tell us the name of this panel. I love the name of this panel. We had a fantastic panel, Rocky. Two of our members who are not here, Ann Bloom and um, Phil Harris, who's GC for Northwestern University. They were fantastic, both Wasn't, of them. Weren't they great? Oh, it was a great panel. Our panel was fantastic. And we talked about scarum or sparum, how aggressive should we get in pleadings? Fantastic discussion. Great panel. Who came up with this title? Was that you? I have to say yes. It was I. It's okay. You don't You don't have to be modest. You can just come out with it. it was, so it was an okay title? It was a great title. Then, uh, yes, it what was What did the rest of you guys think? Did you guys like the title? Awesome title. Yes, it was me. I wouldn't have done it without the title. <laughs> well, I, th- that was your condition for coming on was a good title, I think. Exactly. Right? Yeah. And how about you, Michael? Hey, whatever Mike says goes. You know, he invited me to be on the panel. I'm not going to say differently. That's He's a great it. panelist. We've worked together before. Oh, have you I really? Was, yes, I was very lucky to get him. So why pleadings? What made you think about pleadings as a topic? Because that's not, you know, normally we talk about discovery or we talk about trial techniques. Pleadings, where'd you come up with this? You know, Rocky, in common law, all of law reporting was about pleadings. All of the questions and all of the cases were simply about what could or could not be pled. As we have gone forward, we have put pleadings further and further out of our minds, and we don't think about pleadings very much. So the question came up, how important are pleadings? What should lawyers be thinking about with their pleadings? And what should we be doing with our pleadings? And I think we showed our audience in an hour and a half what a fantastic amount of information and um, what kinds of difficult questions there are to answer about pleadings. So it's interesting. The title is Scarum or Sparum. So let's talk about the Scarum side of it, because that just sounds fun. So how about to the panelists? What do you guys... What do you guys think about scare them? How do you scare somebody with pleadings? David, you want to start us off? Well, I think that in certain instances, you're going to have pleadings, especially a complaint or perhaps a brief or a motion that have a lot of salacious wording or they call names or uh, have a lot of allegations of uh, terrible behavior, whether they're true or not, uh, that, that might scare somebody. I was asked, you know, sort of what my headline was, and I said, you know, my headline is have a purpose for every word that you write in a pleading. So there is a time and a place, I think, to to scare them. For me, it's when I'm seeking a TRO or injunctive relief, some kind of equitable relief along with the complaint, and I want to be forceful and let the other side know that, that we mean business and let the judge know that we think it's an emergency. If you're seeking a TRO, it's an emergency. 
So yeah. you need to have the emotions up in that instance. And, and David, you're from Atlanta, right? So Correct. Tell us what kind of work you do down there. I do about one-third intellectual property litigation, one-third employment, and one-third business litigation. And, of course, they all meet in the middle around non-competes and trade secrets and, and associated business torts. And there's a lot of TRO work in, in that area. Now, when you said salacious and kind of you know, name-calling, this kind of thing, does that really scare the other lawyer or is that really more targeted to the other party? I think that the purpose is to talk to the party. I mean, it, it, especially in a complaint, you don't even know who the, the lawyer is necessarily, although you may if you've had pre-litigation uh, correspondence. But I think you're, you're trying to send a message to, to the party and to the judge and the judge's clerks if you're filing a motion along with it. Now, Michael Weber, you, you're a local guy. You're from Chicago. I'm here so, at, uh, with Dinsmore in Chicago. So, first of all, congratulations on the Cubs winning the pennant. Thank you. Although I am a Sox fan, but, are you, I, but you're thank, a you Sox very, guy? thank you very much. So are you, from, are you from the South? No, 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 no. So you you're a Northside guy who's a Cubs fan. Great memories of the World Series. And you're putting this on the record. This is like, people I'm on, can hear this. I'm on. Dang. Okay. This is, we're having breakthroughs here. Only on Legal Talk Network do we get these kinds of breakthroughs. Only it's, when you're on the it's road. It's hard to admit you're a fan of a team that is what, about 30 games under 500 right now? But you gotta yeah. love the White Sox. But you know, only in Chicago would people back teams like that. Because every. Most other cities, you got fair-weather fans, but you guys stuck by the Cubs throughout, what, it was 109 years without without a single win, and yeah. you guys stuck by them. So, hey, yeah. you got you to hand it to the city of Chicago. It's all good. So, Michael, first of all, tell us what you do, and secondly, tell us your take on pleadings. Okay. Can they be scary, and how do they get scary? I am a commercial litigator with a focus in construction law, um, fidelity and surety bond litigation, a lot of computer fraud and cybercrime uh, coverage issues, and general commercial litigation. I can tell you that um, I'm, I'm more on the defense side than sure. the plaintiff side, but sure. uh, even in evaluating complaints that we receive, I am not necessarily in it to scare, as we use that expression for this presentation. I feel that in receiving pleadings, the pleadings themselves tell me a lot about the civility and credibility and competence of the lawyers on the other side. So if I am reading pleadings that are using salacious terms or are more attacking than uh, factual and reasonable, it tells me, in my opinion, a little bit about where the other side's coming from. By no means is it going to scare us, but I think it's going to put us on guard as to maybe how we approach the case going forward based upon how the pleadings are drafted. Um, for me, I prefer more of a conversational style of writing. I think, uh, as I said in the uh, panel discussion, I think sometimes the best legal writing is when it doesn't read like a lawyer wrote it. So I try to keep my writing very concise, conversational, but not loose, not informal. So what about use of contractions, for example? Would you use, a, would you use isn't instead of is not? Um, not in a formal pleading file okay. with the court, no. Okay. Uh, and, and even really in letters as well. I think my thoughts about how I draft pleadings kind of carries over to my letter writing as well. Um, I try to keep things short, concise, to the point, very factual. I mean, you realize, Rocky, you get an email sure. and it's six paragraphs long. Do you find yourself reading all six paragraphs or do you pretty much hope that the most important stuff is in the first paragraph and you stop there or you skim the rest? And I think a lot of that holds true with pleadings as well. You want to get your points across up front. If you had 45 seconds or 60 seconds with the judge, you want to use it wisely and get all your important points out and then move on. You don't want it just to drag on and get lost 
you know, in the morass of, uh, of a lengthy document. So it sounds like so far, if I'm summarizing this correctly, David is saying it is possible, especially in, say, a TRO context, it is possible to try to use something that scares the other party in the context of your pleadings. And you, Michael, are saying, you know, really, it's not about scaring. It's more about maybe information and strategy with, yeah, the, and, with the tone of your writing. And I realize, you know, we're all clients want us to be zealous advocates at sure. time, but I equate that with also remaining reasonable. I don't disagree with what David said. Um, but I don't necessarily uh, place a heavy emphasis on trying to scare anybody with my pleadings. I, I feel that if it's uh, based in the law and based in facts and it reads well and it has credibility, that's more important to me. Now, Matthew might be from possibly the coolest city in our, in our mix-up here. Matthew's from New Orleans, Louisiana, right? That's correct. All right, so f- we need to get a preliminary question out of the way first. Best place for beignets? So many choices. I mean, my kids, uh, I'd have to defer to my kids, and they love to go to New Orleans uh, Seafood and Hamburger on St. Charles Avenue. They actually have a coffee shop annexed to the restaurant that is open uh, every morning, and particularly on weekend weekend mornings, is bursting with children, all eating beignets. Really? So that's kind of our family spot and kind of our okay. go-to, and, and my kids love it, so I'll side with them. Okay, and and that's that's very wise because when they hear this, they'll be like, "Oh, Dad gave us a shout out." <laughs> this is a this is a smart guy. He's obviously a very good litigator too. So, Matthew, tell us your take on pleadings. Do you think there's a, a role for scariness in them, or is that really talking about something different? You know, I think it's kind of what we alluded to earlier today uh, during the presentation. The best way to really scare someone, I think, is to number one have a very good case, and be factual and be credible and be efficient in the way that you've drafted the pleading so that there's a real tone of seriousness. Um, Not using a lot of hyperbole, exaggerations, uh, conclusory allegations, because the moment I start reading those, I'm just not believing it. And and that's not gonna do you you know any good if it is in fact your objective to try to scare or or to try to, you know, make someone uh, nervous about the case. Um, you know, in terms of sparing, in terms of sparing people, you know, ultimately, I think you're you're really sparing your client uh, more than anybody when you can when you can make sure that every word has a purpose, that you're not engaging in inflammatory conduct that drives up litigation costs. And so, for me, uh, you know, it's just about as it's it's about as as much about sparing my client as it really is uh, trying to spare the other party. So. Let's talk for a second about, and really I want to open this up to all of you guys, including you, Judge, you know, everybody. I think a lot of us see this, the scenario where the opposing counsel, you can tell, or sometimes even those of us on this side might do this, we might cut and paste, or we might see that people have copied and pasted almost pro forma language from one complaint to the next or one answer to the next. What are your thoughts on that, number one? And number two... What do you think are, are maybe some of the downsides to doing that? Because some of the upsides are it's quick, and they've got everything that they wanted to say already redone. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. What's the downside of that, of saying copying and pasting and kind of using pro forma language? One of the big downsides is when they get a fact wrong, a name wrong, and you can see right away that the whole thing was cut and pasted from some other pleading. That's an immediate sign that something is wrong here. They uh, have not prepared their case. They don't know uh, where they're going. And at that point, as a judge, we all know that in most jurisdictions you can amend if you catch that. So they amend and it moves on. Now, as a judge, are you actually reading those pleadings when they first come in? Or at what point do you 
as, as a judge, what point would you catch them in that anomaly in their pleadings? I think uh, it depends on what kind of a judge and where you're sitting, but most judges don't do things that they don't have to until they need to. Sure. Why would a judge read pleadings on a case that may settle a month later? So until the motion to dismiss comes, until the uh, trial comes, until there's some purpose to reading them, I don't think most judges are going to be going back and reading the pleadings. So then that kind of begs the question then, if it's possible that you won't get caught in the mistake or if you can simply fix it with an amendment, why should we care? Well, I think you want to care to look professional, but at the same time, you want to save your client's money if you're billing them by the hour. So you don't want to reinvent the wheel every time if you're doing something that has a formulaic quality to it. But uh, you better be thinking about it, whether you've copied it or not, whether it fits. Amendments are not pro forma always, and they're not always granted. You could misplead a key fact that might affect the entire cause of action and not be able to amend to relate it back. And there are uh, legal malpractice cases based on mistaken pleadings. As I was going to say, you're kind of touching on the M word, but you've just said it. So there's a malpractice component Possibly. to this. So as a panel, do you guys feel like lawyers are giving enough thought to their pleadings in general, or... Is that kind of an overlooked area of trial practice? I think with your comment about cutting and pasting, um, it goes back to what I said earlier, that if I see a lot of mistakes in the initial pleading, which were clearly not caught during the cut and paste process, it tells me something about the competency and credibility of the other side, that they aren't spending sufficient time and putting the attention to the case that's necessary. Um, and I think that's a real red flag. And frankly, if that gets before the court, um, that's not a bad thing for us because it shows the court that the other side maybe is being lazy or inattentive with their drafting. So not necessarily a negative for us. But then we see cases where a party might either win or possibly get a good settlement, either plaintiff or defense, when they engage in these types of tactics. So it, it again goes back to the question of what's the real incentive to try to be as careful as, as you guys are are describing well one of my cases I had a, a was defending a trademark case and in the complaint uh, they sort of went outside the bounds of what was required to plead a trademark cause of action and uh, had some rhetorical flourishes it wasn't necessarily salacious or anything like that but they used the term goodwill in the complaint and that that one word led us to get insurance coverage on the defense for a very small company that could have never defended itself otherwise and their goal was to get us out of the market and they lost the case merely by being undisciplined in their pleading and triggering insurance coverage and rocky clients aren't going to continue to hire me if they see that my pleadings are sloppy mm -hmm. and they're what are they paying me for they're, if i'm not taking the time to make sure what i'm filing is clean and in essence, as close to perfect as, as it can be. David's point is super important. One or two key words can mean a world of difference, whether there is insurance coverage or whether there isn't, and that can change everything. To me, it's all about precision, and, and the, the difference often in a good result and a mediocre result is precision. And by cutting and pasting, you are running the risk of not being precise. Now, that being said, when I see a really, really good pleading, complaint, answer, or whatever come across my desk, my first instruction to my staff is put that in our research bank. <laughs> I may want to refer to it later if we have a similar 
uh, type case. But I think that's the exception more than the rule. That's a good compliment for for an opposing counsel if they can if they can get on on Mueller's research bank. So, <laughs> so I thought I saw one of my pleadings coming out of Mueller's office recently. <laughs> so I'm going to follow up on that. Well, it, it, no. sometimes sometimes that is the highest form of flattery, right? So hey, that's good. You guys work together. Well, guys, this is this is fascinating. I think a lot of us kind of overlook pleading sometimes, and so. It, it was a tremendous panel. I felt like I learned a lot just by being in that session. So hopefully people come to more ABA functions and they come to, this was part of the tort trial insurance practice section, the tips section, but the ABA annual meeting has just so much going on in it. So I want to thank you guys for, for adding to it. You guys did a, did a phenomenal job on your panel. And again, you know, thank you. Thank you for being here. So we have now reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. Judge Panter, David Pardue, Michael Weber, and Matthew Muller. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Hey.